Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Michael Brooks. Anna is out this Saturday. She will be back next Saturday, but we're going to keep going for this week. We have a great guest with us, Torre Reed, author of Towards Freedom, The Case Against Race Reduction. We're going to be talking about a great new piece he just published in the Jacobin online. Of course, Kale Brooks. Uh, why I'm still thinking about Amy Cooper, the Black Birder episode in Central Park. We'll be talking about that. And of course, a whole lot more. Uh, Kale Brooks, ably producing as always. At the end of the show, we'll take some of your questions, uh, some of your super chat questions. And we've got assault to get to uh, and a whole bunch more. So obviously, we're one person down this week. We're missing Anna. Uh, very much uh, part of this 50-50 duos, but I will do my best to take us through here solo. I should say that if you're new to the channel, hit subscribe. Definitely watch, at this point, really a lot of incredible work, including all the previous episodes of Weekends, clips from the show, but also the Stay at Home series. Recently, I've watched the ones on the future of Corbinism and a fantastic introduction to the indispensable historical giant A. Philip Randolph that I hope all of us will start learning from and and acting from today. Uh, And of course, Jacobin Magazine, subscribe to it, get the whole thing and stay, well, beyond informed. I wonder what's better than the word informed. Informed is very overrated. Gives you the analysis and the context to actually understand uh, the forces that are shaping our society. So um, Tori is going to come on in about 15 minutes. Let's just start. We got a couple of clips here of ongoing extreme police violence, police rioting across the country uh, as ongoing uprisings and protests take place across the United States. A judge in New York City has essentially suspended habeas corpus Uh, in terms of detaining protesters, even as the uh, Manhattan District Attorney uh, Vance has indicated that he would not be bringing charges against those that are protesting nonviolently, of course, cannot bank, um, and I would not bank on the police, obviously being honest in terms of reporting uh, an incident. We saw uh, last week, uh, particularly in New York, but also elsewhere, places where it appeared as if the the cops were essentially letting some degree of vandalism or whatever go on and then using that as the sort of, uh, you know, the, the allowance to go and, and charge at and attack and brutalize uh, those who are protesting uh, and, and, and the demonstrators in general. And this is really important information for all of us. It's important because there is a system-wide problem in policing. I'm trying to think of a word stronger than problem. It manifests in the vicious, lethal racism of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. It also, and if we look at the stats, 
that uh, analysts like Adolf Reed have synthesized for us is real is is a system wide problem. It's a racism problem. It's a class problem, and it's a problem of a uniquely militarized police force that aggressively and brutally uh, enacts policies like the war on drugs um, that are the backdrop of gentrification, of capital accumulation at the top, um, and a number of other interconnected issues that we're going to, of course, have to address uh, systemically if we hope, and we must hope because we need to get out of this crisis. There's also a lot of uh, lessons here, frankly, um, for any kind of broad-based uprising or protests or civil disobedience. Uh, the Intercept reported the other day uh, that the army has a war game exercise built on the concept of Zoomer rebellion. The idea that people born after 1996 are going to be involved in ongoing protests and in this uh, war game scenario, potentially, you know, using uh, hacking as a Robin Hood tactic against the banks in Silicon Valley. And it correctly identified so many of the forces that it have, in fact, shaped the lives of Zoomers and millennials, in fact, in different ways. And speaking outside of the generational frame, everybody who is of the working class, the Great Recession. Um, and of course, now we're in uh, the COVID depression as well. Uh, Kale, these are a couple of compilation videos, though, of this police brutalism and uh, people should watch. And especially in light of the moves against civil liberties in New York, the curfew specifically designed to stop protesting in Los Angeles, the moves from Bill Barr and Donald Trump in terms of militarizing some form of martial law in Washington, D.C., uh, people being deployed from the Justice Department without proper identification. These are enormous threats to a constitutional democratic order, if you're concerned about that, and also really to the capacity of doing any type of long-term organizing uh, or, or, or physical uh, protest and politics outside of electoralism, essentially. So let's play a couple of these clips, Kale. communities that are policed this way day in and day out and that is the context for what we see today and for the murders that led us here uh this one is just i mean i i can't add much to it this is a delivery man uh that nypd uh he's pleading with them he's explaining his job they beat him 
because he's involved in this curfew that, of course, is an enormous threat to an enormous undermining of civil liberties to begin with. For real? For real. Ready? Are you serious? You guys can even look on the app. Don't look on the app for me. I need to tell them to look on the app for me. Are you serious? You're going to let them do this? So the cops just arrested a food delivery bicycle. There is a, there's a political legacy that we'll talk about with Torre Reid that synthesizes a materialist socialist politics, an anti-essentialist politics that works to undermine uh, and dismantle and redeploy all of the economic and political frameworks that lead to these poisons like this type of policing. And also the vital legacy of the 1960s rights revolution that dismantled Jim Crow in America that has done some small steps and still so much more to do to have actual full legal civic equity in this country across the board. Those two traditions are vital and need to be joined clearly in any kind of 21st century socialist project. This is also a synthesis that at its best, the African National Congress pulled out, pulled off incredibly well with the Freedom Charter. It locates this brutality, not in ever non-changing mystical forces that we can't fight back and alter, but in material conditions that inevitably lead to this type of cruelty, brutality, hierarchy, racism, and all forms of inequity and brutalism. A. Philip Randolph is a person that I mention a lot because I know that this tradition as the leader of the Pullman Porters Union, a socialist and fierce fighter for decades for economic justice, for labor liberation and civil rights militancy synthesized these things uh, in, in such an effective way that it's still a roadmap for us today. And I want to just play a little bit of A. Philip Randolph talking at the, the March on Washington, which was, of course, March for Jobs and Justice. Fellow Americans, we are gathered here in the largest demonstration in the history of this nation. Let the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob. We are the advance guard of a massive moral revolution for jobs and freedom. This revolution reverberates throughout the land, touching every city, every town, Every village where black men are segregated, oppressed, and exploited. But this civil rights revolution is not confined to the Negro, nor is it confined to civil rights. For our white allies know that they cannot be free, while we are not. 
And we know that we have no future in a society in which six million black and white people are unemployed and millions more living poverty. Nor is the goal of our civil rights revolution merely the passage of civil rights legislation. Yes, we want all public accommodations open to all citizens, but those accommodations will mean little to those who cannot afford to use them. Yes, we want a Fair Employment Practice Act, but what good will it do if profit-geared automation destroys the jobs of millions of workers, black and white? We want integrated public schools, but that means we also want federal aid to education, all forms of education. So there it is. That's the synthesis. And we need to restore that legacy and synthesize those demands urgently in order to, I mean, really just have any kind of modicum or decency, or as Cornel West says, actual democracy, which has not been achieved in this country. And of course, globally, you cannot disconnect those threads. And those threads have been integrated and inseparable from the beginning, those battles. So that even as there are these enormous historical, most important achievements in terms of civil rights uh, that were achieved in the 60s, that then that correlates with a deindustrialization, with an ongoing attack on labor. And then, of course, by the time you get to Reagan, a full integrated economic and racial backlash that undermines the capacity to grow into the kind of full liberation and social democracy for all that A. Philip Randolph and others were fighting for. And then latching onto those other legacies of racist policing, of terrorizing communities through the security services, outsourcing that to contain potential social unrest, to use broken windows, to gentrify, to terrorize, all to help with the smooth upward redistribution of capital. That's the dynamic we're in. And people are out there taking enormous personal risk and you feel it you know, if you've participated in any way, shape, or form, to do something about it. So there's real potential here, and I hope we can all reflect on what A. Philip Randolph and that full tradition was putting forward, as well as uh, the Freedom Charter of the African National Congress, which connected seamlessly the call for a full and real democracy, the destruction of white supremacy policy and the social good, public goods and social distribution for all in a seamless and fundamentally transformative project. All right, guys, we're gonna take a little bit of a break and we will come back with our guest, Torre Reed. We'll be back in a moment.
Welcome back to Weekends with Michael Brooks and Anna Kasparin. Unfortunately, Anna's not with us this Saturday. She'll be back next. Joining us now is Torre Reed, author of Towards Freedom, the case against race reductionism and an excellent new essay in Jacobin. Uh, why I'm still thinking about Amy Cooper, the quote-unquote black birder episode in Central Park. Torre Reed, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. How are you doing? Not bad. Since last we spoke, I got a Japanese screen because so many of your viewers were so invested in the closet behind me in my basement bunker during the zombie apocalypse that I figured I needed to just eliminate that distraction altogether. So I'm doing great now that I have that much more privacy in my own home. So I didn't catch that controversy until your dad pointed it out to me. Yeah. On a couple of weeks later on TVBS, and I, I went back and I I trolled through the live chat from our episode, and I mean it. I, I just there was something very like Adam Curtis or something about it because you're giving this like full blown <laughs> modern history of the United States practically, and everybody's just like, "It's a closet door." <laughs> And and it and of course all it obscured was um, not a meth lab because I wouldn't do meth, and I certainly wouldn't peddle it. Not just because I'm a state employee, but that doesn't help. But it obscured my washer and dryer, and that was about it. Oh, and a utility sink. So for those who are still interested, you've been filled in. Washer, dryer, utility sink. That's it. Um. Can we? So I actually, we'll, we'll maybe we'll get to the process in a little bit. Uh, let's start. Why? I mean, in a way, uh, I mean, Amy Cooper. Uh, she she had her minute. What was that about two weeks ago? Yeah. Uh, you could remind everybody who she is and why she's still on your mind. Well, Amy Cooper is the white investment banker who was a supporter, apparently, of President Obama and the presidential ambitions of Mayor Pete. Buttigieg, who, when confronted by the black birder, uh, Christian Cooper, no relation. What a coincidence, though. That actually made it a lot more difficult to write without sounding repetitive. But but anyway, when Christian Cooper simply asked her to comply with park um, you know, rules as it pertained to leashing her dog, um, she flipped out and threatened to call the police on him. And in fact, just to be clear about that, her threat included a reference to him being a black man. So she threatened to tell the police that she was being threatened by an African-American. An African-American was threatening her life is what she said. But she threatened to tell the police that she was being threatened by an African-American. And then, of course, proceeded to, to follow suit and deliver quite the performance. I mean, I, unless she's a well-trained actress... Uh, she she certainly seemed to feel uh, to to gen up the feelings of um, discomfort and fear, even though she clearly had nothing to fear. I mean, what's what's more wholesome than bird watching? Uh, the only thing I can think of that's more wholesome than bird watching, and the next time you you uh, have an interview with my dad, you should ask him about this, is a trip to the Chicago Historical Society. That that's <laughs> potentially more wholesome than bird watching, but they're pretty close. And thankfully, Chris, uh, Christian Cooper had recorded this exchange on his smartphone and, um, 
you know, he, he was neither incarcerated nor murdered. But if, if one were to do the lay of the land, and I'm sure that on some level, uh, Amy Cooper had done this, hence the threat to threaten the if you're Christian Cooper, for someone to threaten to call the police on you um, for no good reason, right? But casting you erroneously as a threat, certainly in the in in one of the better case scenarios, might result in you spending some time in holding, uh, which would be pretty awful. But it may also be tantamount to a hit, right? I mean, it, it could have very well been a, a SWAT job, as it were. So it was a pretty uh, unpleasant thing to watch. And in, in my case, and, and I know many others, it conjured up that that encounter and her characterization of it conjured up some memories uh, and uh, from many, 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 many previous experiences. So, Do you want to talk? I mean, you actually do go to one of those memories in the piece. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I'd probably be less interested in talking about that specific example because you know in the grand scheme of things i don't even know that it's that interesting to people i mean it it wasn't it was of a piece as christian cooper's or at least my concerns that's a better way to put it my concerns and that specific example you know sort of centered on the the possibility that i could have been christian cooper but but it, and, and that exchange, I mean, that situation ended up resolving more more or less favorably. But what strikes me uh, is, the, um, and I think there's an echo happening. I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, Kale, um, that that both Amy Cooper and potentially the incident you you mentioned, basically, like how do we? Because part of the the point of the essay is what are we turning this into um, in terms of a political project and especially the way Amy Cooper said African-American, even as she's threatening to deploy the police on the guy and you know, threatening his well-being. It struck me that like, this is somebody who actually I'm sure would be trained to do very well on an implicit bias test. Yeah. Somebody who has taken on uh, the rituals and discourses of, you know, being woke, being appropriate, being all of these types of things. And not only has that not sort of, you know, changed her character, quote unquote, more relevantly, it has not changed any uh, material relationship that could, you know, potentially flow out of her actions, even as she's had all of this social training. So what I got, you know, from your piece, and maybe and the reason I, I was, and, you know, not the, the voyeurism, but I thought your your example reflected that as well in some respects. But that this is a very important thing to to get to right now of do we pivot, um, you know, essentially to a, a, a structural agenda that can address these things versus the sort of personal evangelism of it, if I read you right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did I eliminate the echo with... The yeah, headphones. Good, okay, good. that's what I thought. Um, yeah, you know, most of I hate to say this because um, I'm just not this guy, but in in general, but this was one of the harder popular essays for me to write because only because of the personal piece. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm very much alive. You know, I, I went to Catholic school for eight years, and the couple of things that I took from Catholic school in the eight years that I suffered through it were um, one. 
since I entered before John Paul had had successfully displaced liberation theology was that Jesus was some kind of a socialist. So that was one one thing that I took from it. And the other one is redemption and forgiveness bound to contrition. So I've never lost sight of the humanity of anyone, right, in, in any possible exchange. And, and my wife could attest to the kind of angst that I feel when thinking about where the other person is coming from and trying to imagine the various scenarios. So um, one reason that, that it just doesn't make sense to me to get too bogged down in that anecdote is that everyone has screwed up and everyone has done awful things to people. Uh, and again, in my case, it wasn't anything like what could have happened to Christian Cooper. But what has really been striking to me is that how many other black, white collar professionals I know who are people who are, you know, the, the black versions of Amy Cooper, right? People who are appropriately credentialed, um, you know, college graduates who, um, you know, at, at, at first blush, one should think nothing of, right? Um, other than they're a good coworker or whatever. But how many of them have had their own versions of this experience? And of course, I knew that before I wrote, wrote the piece. Um, but I also understood that it that it, it's striking to me to have the, the conversations after the fact, because often enough, people tend to presume that well-educated white people, anyway, are free of racial bias. And the only racist people um, or only bad people are non-college educated whites. And frankly, and just to sort of gradually get my way to your structural point, um, you know, I'd, I'd worked in when I lived in New Orleans the one year of my twenties that I wasn't in school, I worked with people who had voted for David Duke. And, um, and, and, and so these were not abstract David Duke supporters. These are people who had cast ballots for him a couple of years earlier when he had run for governor and U S Senate. And one of the things that was really interesting to me about that is they were certainly, they viewed the world through a racialized lens. There was absolutely no, no question about that at all. But on some level, I didn't find them to be as noxious or dangerous as their counterparts at grad school and Ivy Leagues, right? Because the, their counterparts with respect to racial sensibilities, I mean, in, in Ivy League and functional equivalent, equivalent universities actually have real power, right? I mean, and these, these aren't people you can't just thinking as, you know, a lapsed Catholic, the lapsed Catholic that I am. Um, these aren't people who I could look at and say, well, you know, they've had some disadvantages, they've had some knocks, they are alienated. This is one of the only tools at the ready for them to make sense of the world. Let's say like my previous coworkers as a permanent temporary employee in New Orleans at my first job. My second was great, but the first was terrible. These are well-educated, enlightened with respect to, again, access people who shared worldviews that often enough, you know, were somewhere on the spectrum of... Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think this was the mid to late 90s that I was in grad school. So it, it was the era in which we witnessed a return to scientific racism, a return of scientific racism. So their views were somewhere from time to time on the spectrum of Nazis. Right. I mean, because they were invested in the idea that rich people were where they needed to be because of their genes and or culture and poor people were where they were supposed to be because of their genes and or culture. So one of the interesting things about the Amy Cooper exchange, and of course the exchange that the, the various versions of that experience that I and a lot of other white collar black professionals have had, is that those exchanges that, that 
that I've referenced center on people who we don't presume, as you point to, to suffer implicit from implicit bias or some other framework that we're operating with. And that highlights to me one of the problems with not having a class focus on racial inequalities, because I, I have to say, I mean, there are there are a lot of things that I actually very much admire about Tanisi Coates. I mean, while I was, I, I'm, I guess, a critic of him, uh, I should say I'm a very reluctant critic. The last thing I wanted to do when I wrote that book chapter back in 2017, uh, and certainly before I was gearing up to write it, was to be a Coates critic. I literally turned down opportunities to critique Coates in 2015. Um, but I didn't. You're not opportunistic. I mean, sorry to. to sure. Up, but yeah. Well, and, or at the very least, um, I didn't, didn't, I saw, I would have seen such a challenge as masochistic, masochistic, because when I finally did roll the dice, when I finally did, did decide, well, I had to write this, that chapter was actually originally supposed to be on Obama and Ben Carson instead of uh, Obama and Coates. And when I really got to the details of what the discussion should look like, well, no one cares about Ben Carson anymore. I could say what I need to say in a paragraph with him. Um, But the elephant in the room that I was looking to avoid was Coates. So I said, well, I've got to do it. But once I finally told people that this is what I was going to do, everyone, pretty much anyway, certainly every liberal uh, academic um, or in many left academics, told me I must like pissing people off or that I should expect to piss people off or whatever. Now, this is, it's true, but it's bizarre. Um, but, but I admire his ability to convey a sense of wonder in his prose. I mean, he has a really infectious uh, quality to his writing that, that has been very effective. I and mean, I think that's really impressive. But the thing is that I actually think I'm kind of more cynical about upscale white people than Coates is. And I've, this is one of the things that I've always thought was kind of weird about people like me being cast as class reductionists, because I actually, from the age of 14 forward, uh, you know, my first 12 or 13 years of life, I lived in Southwest Atlanta, Georgia, where everyone was black. So I didn't really interact with white peers before my high school years through high school and sports. Um, so from age 14 forward, I've lived around well-educated white people, right? Uh, and and often enough upscale by extension. And I was always underwhelmed by their racial liberalism, to be perfectly honest, en masse. There are always exceptions, of course. But I thought, I thought they were overhyped, uh, to be honest. And one of the reasons that I thought they were overhyped is that well, blacks were overrepresented among the nations impoverished, and they were and still are. Um, it was alarming to me how many well-educated white people were contemptuous of poor black people. They might have been okay with me, maybe, because I was from the right background or whatever. And they were okay with me until I pointed out that this, you know, I wouldn't have called it underclass ideology, but that's what it was. They were okay with me until I pointed out this underclass ideology stuff that they reflexively spewed was racist. And that would have been the language I would have used as a kid. But I, but it is racist, to be blunt. But the way that they talked about poor people as encapsula- encapsulated by the underclass ideology, poor, poor black and brown people, was callous, to say the least, uh, and illustrative not simply of white privilege, uh, which people are apt to talk about, but their class standing. So to me, the idea of trying to connect with upscale whites, which is what the Coates Project is, um, because 
it's not like poor people read the Atlantic, uh, imbues them, imbues the Amy Coopers of the world with a progressive, with progressive qualities that I'm not actually convinced that because of their class standing as much as anything else that they actually have, right? They, they might be cool with well-qualified, well-educated black coworkers at the investment banking firm. But are they going to be okay with giving up some of that money that they make <laughs> for single payer or for um, public higher education or whatever, right? Whatever social democratic policies that poor black people, poor black and brown people and working class black and brown people would actually benefit from disproportionately. I acknowledge my privilege. Can I keep my money? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's how that works, isn't it? <laughs> So then, and that's how it takes on, because one of the other things you said in this essay, and I want you to, to explain um, how affirmative action fits into this and the types of policies that this leads to. But you said that weirdly, you know, you feel vindicated by a lot of how, how things are sort of moving. And, you know, if, and again, if I'm reading you right, it's because of this this interesting move that you're catching where it's some of the most sort of things that might seem aesthetically the most radical are just moral improvement projects that appeal to the anxieties of the white upper middle class primarily and then get sort of go through a cycle where they're completely divorced from you know a material agenda um is, is am i reading you right and then that basically you need that and i'd like you to talk about that too because you do get to it very concretely including with uh, affirmative action which i feel like people don't talk about nearly as much anymore but it's still obviously a really important policy area yeah you know it's interesting that people don't often enough don't talk about affirmative action explicitly but they do talk about it implicitly by way of diversity and equity Right. And to be honest, I'd prefer that they talk about it as affirmative action because affirmative action gets an unfair, bad rap. Uh, and and I think the failure to talk about diversity and equity as affirmative action helps to fuel the unfair, bad rap that it gets. Because, you know, it's been a, as long as it's been affirmative action, it's been illegal to have quotas in employment for racial minorities and women. Right. And yet people presume that that's what affirmative action is. Uh, because of decades worth of the rights attack on affirmative action and, and other anti-discrimination programs. And frankly, you know, neoliberal Democrats like Bill Clinton giving too much ground to the right on on the framework in the 19 in the 1990s. Um, the diversity and equity version of affirmative action uh, really kind of reifies race in ways that affirmative action, in, at least in origin, didn't have to race, gender, fill in the blank Did in a way that. On that, I, that's really important. Sure. Well, way back in the day, uh, when you get Title VII, uh, and then the first round of um, when EEOC, by the, so Title VII, nineteen sixty four, and the EEOC finally has teeth in the early nineteen seventies, um, affirmative action functioned as a kind of anti poverty program, and it wasn't supposed to function alone, right? It was it technically precedes the War on Poverty, but the War on Poverty presumed that what I should say policymakers in the war, but the war on poverty can't presume anything. The policymakers associated with the war on poverty presumed that 
the the bulk of racial disparities could be attributed to some combination of the cultural deficiencies of, well, first, you could say depressed demand, um, so insufficient growth, the then beyond that macroeconomic issue, uh, the cultural deficiencies of the poor blacks and brown people, or Appalachian whites for that matter, right? So the underclass broadly defined, uh, and of course, racism, right? Discrimination. And so on some level, anti-discrimination policies were conceived then, uh, and, and this is true from their original conception, as an anti-discrimination project, as part of a broader anti-discrimination project, which is great. Now, of course, the problem is that in the context, as we, I think, probably talked about before, in the context of the mid-1960s, that would be insufficient because of the other macroeconomic things that were going on. But, but those policies were necessary, even if they were insufficient. As we move forward in time, though, uh, you know, 1978 forward, basically, the way that people talked about affirmative action was less about anti-poverty. And I, and I would like to, to complicate the anti-poverty piece just a minute, but I'll come back to that. But less about anti-poverty and more about, well, diversity. And what diversity presumes is that by the 90s easily, it, it proceeded from the view, it was an ethnic pluralist framework, basically, that within the heart of every black person or in the part of every Hispanic person or in the heart of every woman, you know, fill in the blank, is an essence that's there. Uh, and so for all intent and purpose, uh, the defense of affirmative action by way of diversity would center on the notion that black people, brown people, uh, whatever their sex, women, whatever their race, would bring some quality that enabled them to essentially speak for the tens of millions of members of their group. So this is what makes it kind of ethnic pluralist-like because it you know, proceeds from the same view. Now, just, yeah. So can you just give us 30 seconds on what ethnic pluralism means? And ethnic pluralism is a construct that gains a lot of traction post-war and it's bound to an, a formal rejection of scientific racism. So that's good. But instead of completely rejecting the idea that there's some intrinsic quality to ethnic groups, and, it, and of course it rejects race in favor of ethnic groups, and ethnic groups are supposed to be determined not by biology, but by culture, right? So a Midwesterner could be an ethnic group, technically. But the way that um, the ethnic pluralists talked about culture was actually a lot more like race because they presumed that after generation after generation after generation of an Irish person in America, um, that person would still have some essence you know, five generations later after the potato famine or whatever. Okay. You could say like, okay, like, you know, Liam, your family has lived, I'm sorry, I'm going for it. Lived in uh, Stoughton for five generations. But I really would like to have a better understanding of, uh, of, of the potato famine. Can you tell what, what is the Irish perspective on that? That. Married. Well, it wouldn't be genetic, cultural memory. Right. But if we consider the fact, so it's technically, rhetorically, it's culture, but considering the fact that, let's say, there might not be any connection between Liam uh, and Ireland at all, then what's the mechanism? Or for that matter, Liam's parents and grandparents, and I guess technically that would even give us the great grandparents too, then what would the mechanism be for Liam still having some connection to Ireland since it's not 
a cultural exchange because it can't be that because he's not in Ireland, nor were his parents, nor were his grandparents. And if they've moved to the suburbs surrounded by Polish Americans and Italian Americans and wasps, many of them coming from blended families or whatever, uh, mixed ethnic group families, and you still go to Liam, even though Liam is just this suburban white guy at this point, right, uh, to speak on Irish potato famine, then that's not culture that you're talking about. <laughs> that's got to be race because there's no exchange, right? There's no contact there. And I, I, I love your your example because I, I will share one anecdote. I have a, had a student, a graduate student who's re- really great, but she was Irish American and she had taken a trip to Ireland when she was a kid with her parents to connect with their distant cousins or whatever. And she was so excited. She was probably like seven or eight. She was so excited. And she said to her cousins, you guys are so lucky you live in Ireland because you must get to eat Lucky Charms every day for breakfast. And they looked at her like she was out of her mind. Then what the hell are Lucky Charms? But the kids speak version. And she explained it to them and they were, they thought she was nuts and she was completely crestfallen, but she had a fictive, very much shaped by American culture, understanding of what it meant to be Irish American. Like, you know, you know, like all ethnic racial groups would about their homeland, several generations removed. So the diversity piece is kind of ethnic pluralism. And we've moved away from a kind of anti-poverty understanding of affirmative action towards this thing, uh, which is in step, this diversity framework, which is in step with, um, you know, the return of scientific racism on some level, or at least the rise of neoliberalism. And, and frankly, it does, it can lend itself to rather unfortunate, ugly exchanges. Um, I, I don't think it's actually out of step with Amy Cooper's dealings with Christian Cooper, to be honest, because if she assumed, so I'll go this route. Tony C. Coates had written an article called Beyond the Code of the Streets that came out, I want to say, in 2013. Uh, my friend Pascal Robert had done um, an essay on this. And I read it a couple years after the fact and was stunned by it because according to Coates in this essay, uh, in the heart of every 30-something-year-old black middle-class professional beats, um, or in the chest of every 30-something-year-old black professional, beats the the heart of someone who has some street ways in him, right? Um, read it. I'm not making this up. And when I read it, what I was horrified by, and this will get me to Amy Cooper, is I had had white classmates and white coworkers at jobs, good and bad alike, who actually had that mindset about black, they're just waiting. Like they interpret uh, the hurt look in the eye of a black coworker because the, the black coworker or brown coworker is hurt that a colleague said something that was unintentionally uh, unkind and perhaps a racist, racist or racially informed way. They interpret that as anger and hostility, right? Um, so, you know, there is this filter that people operate with. But interestingly enough, I think the diversity framework, I, because of, of what it is, um, doesn't really help that cause. And I say this as a, a defender of affirmative action. And one other thing I want to say about it as an anti-poverty agenda is that, you know, I mean, I, it's also clear that middle class at this point in the post-industrial era, that white collar professional middle class or managerial class types benefit from it probably disproportionately, right? This is something that A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin predicted uh, when they were making the case for the freedom budget for all on top of, you know, what would eventually be called affirmative action. So I, I think that's that's pretty, a, pretty apparent. But 
some people will hear what I'm saying that affirmative action defended as an poverty rather program rather than diversity as a dig or a case for just a class version of affirmative action. But the fact of the matter is, and I'll leave myself out of it and point point to my parents. My parents were well educated black people, and and they the only reason they had access to the jobs that they were actually qualified for. <laughs> Uh, in the 70s was because of affirmative action. Were it not for affirmative action, they wouldn't, they, they probably still would have had gainful employment, but but white collar managerial class employment would have been out of their reach because of employer discrimination. Right. That's how it can function still and function in an anti-poverty program. I could still hypothetically get a job in the post office if it still exists um, without affirmative action maybe. But would I have the same access to the professoriate in the absence of affirmative action? Would women, would there be as many white women, let's say, because uh, I know white people don't think, don't realize that white women actually are the beneficiaries of affirmative action and only imagine that it's, it's black and brown women. But no, I mean, numerically, I think it's pretty clear that white women have been the principal numerical beneficiaries of affirmative action. Would there be as many white women um, medical doctors or lawyers or professors, I think it's pretty clear there wouldn't have been actually because before affirmative action, there were very few of those those people, right? So it still has that function. We just don't talk about it that way at all. Now, I want to make a, 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 a distinction here that is, is difficult, but I think it, at least this is the way that I understand basically this anti-essentialist work put forward by scholars like you and others. Um, and there's actually some great quotes in the essay that I'll, I'll read directly from that, that really help make my case here, but, uh, or your case, I should say, or my framework for understanding your case. So there's the sort of uh, classic, like, you know, uh, Stephen Colbert, you know, Bill O'Reilly character, like, oh, I, you know, you tell me you're black. I don't know. I don't see race, right? This, this sort of, and very um, and and this is sort of out of favor now as the right becomes more overtly racist and the liberal class becomes much more interested in you know the rituals of denunciating racism. Mm-hmm. But this was something very much of the '90s and the aughts of you know everybody and and you see like a guy like who's just out of sorts historically like Sam Harris will still you know you know, stop it, black people. And I've got a Martin Luther King quote for it. So, you know, see, I'm not a racist. And, and so there's this one, you know, it, it, it races isn't real. So we don't acknowledge history. We don't acknowledge discrimination. We don't acknowledge uh, different experiences of being in the world uh, and, and so on. Then there's, you know, the politics and culture of obviously acknowledging that these things absolutely exist and they influence all sorts of interactions, outcomes, etc. Now, the point you know that you're making, and I'll and I'll write you know, and I think it's I'll read this paragraph. For example, by definition, Christians believe that Christ was the Son of God. The facts that millions of Jews, Muslims, and atheists necessarily reject this belief does not change the fact that billions of Christians embrace it. Likewise, the fact that more than half of the world's population rejects the fundamental tenets of Christianity is inconsequential 
to Christianity's influence over political and social movements, ranging from colonialism to modern civil rights movements. A cut to the quip, racism, the belief in races, is unquestionable, even if races are not. This is a third position that gets um, uh, often, frankly, cynically attacked as the first position, which is right. absolutely if not, right. which is saying that, of course, it, it, you know, one other analogy, like in a Buddhist understanding, the self isn't exactly real, but people experience the self as a real, you know, as a real phenomenon, obviously. And the point is, if I understand it correctly, and please elaborate, is that when you are making the, the pivot from a political project that acknowledges the real social consequence of the belief in something as, in addition to toxic, honestly, just delusional and ahistorical is actually a scientific, you know, biological distributions across the human race. That's a ludicrous belief. Um, that has absolutely real, tangible, and terrible social consequences. However, part of the pivot for materialist anti-racism or anti-essentialism is in the process of dismantling it to clearly and, unex and, and, and unequivocally uh, assert and demonstrate its lack of realness. Yeah. So, so Does that make any sense? Or no? Yeah, I'm I'm following you. I um. Many of us who are cast as class reductionists, which I think means people who don't think that racism is a force of life, are not class reductionists because we believe that racism is, in fact, a force of life, but that racism is not. Racism and race are two different things, right? I mean, the point of race is racism. There's no question about that, right? But, but what race refers to is the existence of biological races. Well, most biologists and most anthropologists will tell you that that's crap, right? That they can't exist, um, but that race is a social construct. That's what historians and, and many social scientists have been saying. Scientists have been saying, but I've noticed over the years, again, informed by a diversity discourse, and frankly, um, this this analysis that I've come up with has been shaped also by some experiences that some former students of mine who are public school teachers have shared with me as well that. When people hear you, many people, when many people hear you say that race is a social construct, um, it's not a biological category, they, as you point to, hear that as, as a, a case that racism isn't real. And that drove home the need for me to drive home to readers <laughs> that what matters about the realness of race is its social realness because we're social animals. It's an ideology, right? Uh, and since we, and, and with a huge cultural imprint, so it shapes how we think about the world. But as an ideology, it also means that it's not timeless. It's not immutable. It would only be immutable if race and racism were the same thing, even though the point of race is racism. Race is a fantasy construct, right? And it's a fantasy construct that's established to treat as natural, you know, inequalities that are the product of human endeavors. And if you decide that, let's say, oh, I don't know, if you're a defender of slavery in America in the 19th century and the abolitionists say, hey, slavery is a sin, 
And it also bumps up against uh, our purported beliefs as Americans that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, what's your workaround there if you're a defender of slavery? Well, your workaround is, oh, the, the, it doesn't apply to black people because black people are inferiors, you see? And, and it's the responsibility of a good slave or a good Christian responsibility to take care of them because they're inferiors, right? So that is a really convenient way to treat blacks at slavery as exceptional within the context of American democracy. And that's a small window onto what one, one example, and there are a gazillion, of the work that race does to treat as natural in inequalities that are the product of human rather than biological endeavors. But again, I mean, if you're a leftist, to be attacked by people who understand themselves to be leftists as one who is denying the existence of racism when you've never done this, when let's say in my case or in Cedric Johnson's case, um, I bet Barbara Jean Fields, I won't speak for her though, but I bet this is true. I know this is true in Adolf L. Reed Jr.'s case and Sr.'s case for that matter, that the whole reason he got into this enterprise was to make sense of racial inequality in the first place. Um, and then as you dive into it, you do the scholarly dig, you realize, oh, wow, or, or even just move and live around. You realize that it's more complicated than just white people not liking black people. But there's other stuff that's a facet, but there's other layers to this, this horrible onion uh, that is inequality in the United States. And so you add, try you do your part to add to the, the depth of the understanding of it. And then people see the depth is somehow a denial of the social consequences. It's very frustrating. And so I relish the opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, not to interrupt, but it just seems to me sometimes a cynical, sometimes maybe just a missing, like confusing the first and third position. Yeah. As the most crass, the most dumb, the most overtly ahistorical and reductive being confused with the most fully fleshed out, the most fully explored, you know, all dynamics concluded because, and, and maybe this is where some of the nub of the argument is though, which is that, and again, another thing that gets deployed that isn't true. Anybody that denies the existence of massive prevalent and violent racism in the United States is either absolutely delusional or cynical or, or Ben Carson. <laughs> and, but the, but do, and I, and I get, again, this is what I'm taking from the scholars that you mentioned, uh, you know, including you, who I read and have the privilege to talk to is that in the fight, and maybe, you know, you can also touch on the policy agenda here too, uh, to undermine this, uh, we actually don't want to reify it. And so some of the rituals and almost religious discourses that have emerged around the personal process of fighting these things really reify it and fetishize it outside of history as a category. No, that, that's right. And um, here's an anecdote for you. In uh, this is spring of 2016, I had the pleasure of hosting two sessions with high school students um, where I teach at Illinois State University. Uh, used to be a normal college. And it still has a very large educate, school of education. And more importantly, the history department uh, that I'm in has a fantastic history ed program, which has just been a godsend for me because it's an opportunity to pay it forward uh, with 
with great history teachers. And so as part of the history ed program, we had faculty meeting with mixed with uh, groups that were comprised of a mix of undergraduates, maybe a couple graduate students and high school kids. And I had two sessions. One went very, very well, but the other one didn't go as well. And I was basically making a stripped down version of the argument that I'm making toward freedom. Right. And the first group, high school kids got it because one of them was going to Chicago State. And I'll leave out the backstory there. But she absolutely could see the relationship between race and class being inextricably linked. I'll tell you this much, because our our Republican governor was looking to gut Chicago State. Right. Um, And used, ironically, a language infused with what's it called diversity and equity as part of his rationale for 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 um, gutting it. So that was nuts. So she got it. But in the next group, and I'll spare you the details, one of the kids asked me, he's a white kid, asked a, you know, a quite sincere but almost bemused question, which was the best and worst question I could have gotten all rolled up in one. And he said, so wait a minute, are what you, is, is what you're saying is that we don't have to always have racism? And technically, that's not what I was focused on, but that was the clear implication of what I was saying. If race is a social construct and there's no such thing as a timeless ideology, the parameters of race have changed over the last century or even in my lifetime for what it's worth. So, so yeah, it was implicit. So I was glad he picked up on it. But the thing that was frightening about it was he was almost incredulous as were, as were some of his classmates, because it never occurred to them. And if it's like that, if, if this is something that we're stuck with, well, I'm pretty cynical about professional managerial class liberals. This enthusiasm is going to pass, right? I mean, I fear a second Trump administration will do it, right? I mean, if, if Trump is reelected, I would not be surprised if a lot of the zeal that many professional managerial class liberals have for anti-racism and some Republicans, right? Some very respectable Republicans from that, that class will pass if only because, and, and I'll stress, if only because the Obama strategy would have failed twice, right? The Obama, finding those Obama voters worked twice when it was Barack Obama, Obama was a very talented and charismatic figure, failed with Hillary in all the ways that, that matter. And if it were to fail with Biden, you know, I, I'm very, I was very young when Reagan was elected the first time, uh, but I was about to graduate from high school uh, when he left office. Um, or I guess I, had gra- I was graduating from high school when he left office. And, and I, I recall the conservatism of that era that was, um, you know, buttressed by two Reagan terms and the way that the Democrats went afterwards, particularly after Dukakis' failure. And that gave us right-wing Democrats who basically told black people to kick rocks, right? I mean, the DLC line, which people somehow seem to, to miss the real implications of this, was to tell organized labor to kick, to kick rocks and to tell black and brown people uh, and poor people to kick rocks, right? And, you know, that was a capitulation to Reaganism. That was one or uh, th- those ter- the betrayal of those Democratic constituencies that we witnessed in the Clinton years. Um, would have been elements of their capitulation to, to Reaganism. So I have very grave concerns about where this will take us if we don't smarten up on, you know, the limitations of this class project. Well, Tori Reed, 
I appreciate your time immensely. Everybody read the essay in Jacobin and everybody get towards freedom, the case against race reductionism. Um, it's really a case against all forms of reductionism, um, historicizing and then properly strategizing from there. Torrey, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Uh, all right. We can actually, you know what, uh, Kale, let's take a one minute break and we will be right back. Welcome back to Weekends. It's time for salt. And to help me set up the salt is Kel Brooks, our producer. Hey, how's it going, Michael? Kel is just like, you're, I, I literally was typing 30 <laughs> seconds. You're just like, back now. Sorry. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. I'm not, uh, I haven't trained myself to, you know, I feel like in order to be like a proper prima donna, you would have needed to have like a proper TV gig at some point. Like if you're a podcast or YouTube host who's like screaming at producers, nah, it doesn't I mean, work as much as I'd like it to. Yeah. I mean, I verbally abuse you in this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Anna's come from, from like a decade on TYT and, we haven't had any prima donna issues there. She's been a fantastic host. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, Anna's just Anna's just like high quality. Um, Anna's just like a really really good person. I'm just saying, like even if you wanted to, mm. it seems ridiculous. You know what I mean? It's like you're on YouTube. No matter how many people are watching, like relax. Um, Kale, you're going to help us do the salt segment, and then of course we'll take a few super chat questions. Kale. Who are we salting today? Yeah. So, you know, this week has been difficult. There's been, you know, we've already covered at the beginning of the show the uh, just the kind of the horrible scenes we've seen in the streets. Some of us seen with our own eyes um, of friends and comrades alike being brutalized by by police officers. Um, And, uh, you know, and there's been a wide range of reaction uh, from that, that I think the the movement itself, there's been liberal responses, there's been leftist responses, um, even, you know, I would say there's some quasi-conservative responses, but, uh, you know, the most egregious out of all of this, of course, are the corporate responses of every corporation coming in, swooping in, letting you know that they too do care about Black lives. And uh, one, one response that I found particularly egregious was... Uh, and granted, this is probably something that was scheduled ahead of time, you know, before before the week really started off. Um, but this was a concert, I guess, uh, hosted by Heineken and Major League Soccer. And so they had the uh, producer and DJ David Guetta 
Uh, I hope I'm, I don't care if I'm pronouncing his name right. But so they had David come on to, uh, to DJ on top of the UN building, I believe on June 1st. And so it's just, it's just, I, I, yeah, I want to play it for everyone. Yeah. Just there's, it barely requires, you set it up perfectly. Let's just get a load of this. I mean, this is a week where Netflix, where Nike, where everybody, uh, you know, every corporation, all of a sudden, uh, Goodell was like, hey, maybe we shouldn't have destroyed Kaepernick's career. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary. And this sort of, in some ways, I mean, I feel bad because actually probably in the grand scheme of things, like this guy is dead. Like, you know, he's not Roger, he's not Goodell, right? But mm-hmm. – this is pretty much a good distillation of all of the uh, the brand work that's going on to try to co-opt and uh, get momentum off of this movement. Yeah. So here's the here's the clip. The world is going through difficult times, and America too, actually. So last night, I knew we were going to do this. And I made a special record. So this record is in honor of George Floyd. And I really hope we can see more unity and more peace when already things are so difficult. So shout out to his family. today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream. That makes me, you know, remember the old uh, uh, Daily Show where Jon Stewart would play some clip and he'd come back like, that. Yeah. that is actually the only response to that. That is, I mean, that's basically everything wrong in one clip. Yeah. That's incredible. And the way he's like, shouts to George Floyd's family. This man was just murdered on the street. He starts putting... Some cop murdered this man. He puts on this, this synth music. It was almost, honestly, it would have been horrifying enough, but it's like, it would have been better if he didn't need, if he didn't mix in uh, the Dr. King speech. He needed to though. That was, that was a yeah. necessary ingredient. No, that that's very ingredient to really show you that this was serious. Anyway, uh, we should hire him for a Jackman party. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't know. It sounds like people like the music we have already, but if you guys would prefer David Guetta doing a remix of Adolf Reed or A. Philip Randolph, uh, we can make that happen. I, I felt like this clip was, was the perfect kind of 
the the other side of having opening the show with one of the most powerful speeches in American history, uh, A. Philip Randolph's uh, introduction at the beginning of the the march or the the march on Washington for freedom and jobs. That just how horrifically distorted the civil rights movement has become in 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 American pop culture and and like liberal culturalism, and that you can take MLK's words. And and then you just have the the clips of like the 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 soccer player and and his wife I presume just like deadpan dancing to it like like, like no we're duck face dancing because this is serious yeah <laughs> I actually would I actually love you know what if we could put some synth music underneath like like Adolf Reed just with one of his like great just like yeah well I mean that's kind of stupid. And then it just, just like the synth just drops. <laughs> that would actually be fucking awesome. I'm really into that as a creative project. We should work on that. Um, all right, folks. Do we have a couple of super chat questions before we quit? Uh, next week, Anna will be back. Um, but really, really uh, a great show. Yeah. Um, I really strongly recommend you grab Tori Reed's uh, book. Yeah, that's fantastic. The, the book is fantastic. Um, I got a chance to read it a couple months ago, and it's just such an incredible synthesis of so much of his work that he's been doing over the last few years. And um, I think because for whatever reason, you know, and I mean, there's very obvious and important reasons like why this race class dynamic gets so complicated for so many people that, and we were talking about this before, that I think some a large part of it is the fact that the actual ontology the actual existence in the real world of races is not true there is no such thing as real actual biological races it's a it's a mistake of or it's a mistaken understanding of what biology is but then the actual racial oppression or domination that people experience is a real material relationship and and i think that's just those two things getting uh interconnected or or kind of yeah, it's just it's it makes this whole thing so much harder to untangle, and I think Chire is one of the people who does an exceptional job of of untangling these. Um, and one more thing before we take super chat questions, just because we're starting to get one, a couple of them. Um, people should should put those questions in the chat. Um, something just for me personally, like something that really helped me understand the uh, social constructiveness of race, um, how we understand. Uh, you know, the essential, how we understand essentialism, racial essentialism, um, and especially touching on the topic of passing, of someone passing for one race, but actually being a member of a different race. Um, There's this fantastic essay by Walter Ben Michaels called The Autobiography of an Ex-White Man that came out, I think, in 1997. well, you know, Ben Michaels is a collaborator and friend of, of Reed's. Um, well, very, yeah, I, uh, I enjoy uh, reading Walter Ben Michaels, uh, as well as, you know, Joanna Viest and Adolph Reed and Cedric Johnson at Nonsite. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's, I think you can find that Walter Ben Michaels essay you're talking about at Nonsite, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, it should be republished if not. Yeah. Do we have any um, super chat questions before we yeah. wrap? Yep. So we got one from Carlos, and Carlos says, 
been talking to people who support the protests and the curfew, how to talk to normies about curfews and public safety. Uh, and he also just adds up, would that include political education in the movement? Um, um, I would really actually, with things like curfews, I would really start with a very broad conversation about civil liberties. Um, people really need to understand that those moves to block people's ability to do any kind of protest um, is a fundamental threat to a constitutional order that most people take very seriously. So I would strongly emphasize that. Then I think you can kind of open up, uh, depending on somebody's receptivity, you know, look, in order for, and we know this historically, that protests that achieve things, including, frankly, first and foremost, ones that tend to, you know, nonviolent tactics, are always still predicated on disrupting the flow of things. Like, you know, there is a different energy if you're standing in front of the Barclays Center, and it's great. It's really, it's, it's all important. Whatever anybody's doing, zero, like, not even a comment, let alone judgment. But I'm just saying, like, you stand, uh, people speak, there's some rallies, it's, it's there, it's contained. Then you go and you say, walk up Flatbush, and you're blocking the flow of traffic, and you're having, it's just a completely different interaction. It's a completely different consequence. So if people have receptivity and some seriousness uh, about, the crisis that's being highlighted, then you can open the broader door. The third thing I would say is that this as, as is the case with so many things, you do need to be quite mindful of those, you know, normie opinions and those enormous contradictions in public opinion polling. There's some real movement in public opinion, opinion polling for, um, for, for civil rights, for reform, I think that there is, in terms of, of these issues, in terms of policing, in terms of understanding the racism, lethality, and brutalism of police. Beyond that, in order to get to, like, so for me, I don't fetishize various slogans. I actually have no, there's, I mean, basically the function of policing as it exists now needs to be split up into several different functions. And a vast majority of these things either need to be things that frankly, we're not policing because we're not doing broken windows uh, to terrorize black and brown communities and to uphold class structure. And also um, other things like, you know, uh, people who are having example, like mental health problems, uh, they should, you know, <laughs> Uh, social workers, caregivers, things like that uh, need to be deployed, uh, not you and not people with guns. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, again, I don't emphasize tracking polls and thinking somewhat clearly about where majorities are at because I want people to limit their political horizon. I just want us to actually uh, take those things into account so that potentially radical things can be accomplished. Because if we don't do that, then it really ultimately becomes, you know, especially frankly for people kind of uh, involved from positions of relative privilege, just emotional catharsis, and that's not going to achieve anything. So I would think um, of really those, those kind of three things uh, in, in terms of, you know, quote unquote, normie conversations. I also think things are really fluid. Um, 
I have seen, you know, social media anecdotes of very insulated middle-class white people going from, you know, seeing, uh, you know, the murder of George Floyd doing bad apple talk, which I love as Chris Rock said, bad apples is a very nice term for murderers. Then uh, as this has gone over the week, pivoting into a slightly larger understanding, like all of a sudden, wait a second, um, understand that Breonna Taylor was killed, understanding, starting to track a little bit of a larger understanding around racism and policing and police viciousness. Uh, up until th- uh, seeing the response to the protests and actually starting to have a, why are these police departments so militarized across the board? What is their actual function? What the hell is going on here? So I also think things are very, very fluid. And a, and a you know, a fun stat on the flip side was, uh, and I love that it said somewhat, because, you know, when they do these polls, it's always like, you know, somewhat, or I forget what, or very favorable or somewhat favorable. 53% of people were somewhat favorable of burning down that precinct where, uh, where Chauvin came from. Uh, it's actually an incredible stat. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And all the polling that we have basically confirms that people are in support of the protests, that people see, they clearly recognize the the overstep that police have taken, the they're against the militarization of the police, that they they think that the murders are horrific. Um, I think where some of the polling gets a little bit more, uh, there's less support or it's a little bit more all over the place is when it comes down to the actual political solutions of how do we actually live in a society where, you know, we make sure that people are not the victims of crime, but simultaneously we don't have a police force that looks like and acts like an invading army that brutalizes, uh, you know, people who are historically marginalized, people who are in uh, neighborhoods that, um, you know, because of redlining and these other, you know, horrific, you know, practices of the past and have been only concretized by neoliberalism and entrenched these people into poverty that, uh, you know, how do we actually put forward a solution that actually addresses social ills and poverty but, you know, taking care of people, taking care of people's needs, growing solidarity among other among people. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is, you know, in real time, the protests figuring out how to, you know, concretize these political demands. And um, and, you know, I think there's uh, increasing, you know, people are increasingly more and more favorable towards the protesters and towards the demands. And so it's incredible courage. It's, I mean, and yeah, so it's anyway. Yeah. What's the next one? Yeah, we got another question from Matthew Riley, who's asking, what do you make of the unwillingness of corporate media to hold a good faith discussion about the need for police reform? Well, I think they're all over police reform. I think they're not all over uh, defund as a concrete political project to radically cut police budgets and redeploy um in much more strategic directions. And again, let's be really concrete. Some people are going to ask you questions like, wait a second, there are actually like serious crimes that exist and, uh, and people don't want to deal with those serious crimes. And in fact, if we go back to the, you know, the modern, let's say like last three decades, acceleration of policing, expansion of the prison industrial complex in the Clinton era, it was actually um, done 
with uh, approval across the board, um, both politically and in terms of public opinion polls across demographics, including obviously race. And a part of that was because it was in response to actual problems that exist, not the bullshit ones uh, that we identify in, in uh, broken windows. So, you know, I, I, I think, um, so, and that goes back to, to again, breaking up the functions. And, and I, I mentioned, you know, Waz uh, with uh, a majority report with me, you know, talked about the difference between the boys in blue and plainclothes detectives and what different types of police are doing and when. Um, but even beyond that, I think that, you know, a real conversation put forward by, you know, I always hesitate to do these things because you're always missing names, but like uh, I think uh, Vital's work on policing or Malika Jabali's work, like you get to this stuff, you get to core structures of capitalism and distribution. And that's not a cable news conversation. So that's why. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they're going to be able to celebrate the, the DC mayor writing black lives matter in the street Right, right. But, somebody who literally endorsed Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so I don't see any more questions. We only got those two. If there's anyone who last minute wants to... One more, if anybody wants to get in under the wire in the super chat. If not, Kale, thank you so much. Next week, we will be back, Anna and I both. Recommend everybody follow up and read Torre. If you're out there protesting, uh, we salute you and stay as safe as you can. Um, and, uh, you know, take the risks you feel comfortable taking. Um, but besides that, hit subscribe. Check out all the work of the Jackman. Thanks a million, Kale. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you, Michael. Oh, wait. Oh, one more. Uh, someone asked, what are your orders to Antifa this weekend? Stay safe. Um, I think we, I think we just covered what our orders are. Yeah. And well, um, uh, yeah. In the, uh, Bill Barr era, uh, wait, no, in the Bill Barr era, no, we have to say, yeah, no, we're all commanders of Antifa, all of us. So mm, yeah. Reporting right. for duty. Yeah. Reporting for duty and orders secret. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Michael. Have a good weekend, everyone. Take care guys. Mm-hmm.